Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a new weekly podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them, all set against the heartwarming, upbeat backdrop of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter, a passionate bird enthusiast with a tendency to taking a sideways glance at the art of bird watching. But this isn't a podcast just for bird lovers, far from it. Have you ever paused to admire a robin perched inquisitively on a spade or ever put food out for the birds in your garden? Have you ever taken a kid to feed some ducks or even once looked at a bird and thought, I wonder what that is? If so, then stick the kettle on, put your feet up, have a custard cream and we'll get started. My special guest this week is David Lindo. David is the urban birder, a broadcaster, writer, speaker, educator and bird tour leader. His mission is to engage city dwellers around the world with their environment through the medium of birds. He has written countless articles on urban birds, urban conservation and wildlife in general for many websites, publications and magazines, and is a regular television and radio presenter featuring on channels and stations all around the globe. David was recently named as the seventh most influential person in wildlife by BBC Wildlife magazine and last year was shortlisted for the Professional Publishers Association Columnist of the Year Award. He was the mastermind behind Britain's National Bird Campaign in 2015 that resulted in almost a quarter of a million votes. His books include The Urban Birder, Tales from Concrete Jungles, Urban Birding and How to Be an Urban Birder. His other roles include Vice President of the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust and Honorary President of Columbia Bird Fair. He has ambassadorial roles for London Wildlife Trust, Lyca Optics and CJ Wildlife, amongst others, and as patron for Birding for All, the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the Landmark Trust. He is a very busy man. David, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. It's good to see you. Kit, lovely to see you as well. Um, I've been a great fan of yours in terms of your innovative ideas and work. So it's really great to have the opportunity to work with you. Thank you very much. Well, this podcast is new and it's loosely based on the tentative premise of surviving an environmental apocalypse and choosing five bird species to share the resulting barren wasteland with. And that idea seems a bit less ridiculous than it would have done a year or so ago. So 2020 was a very strange time for everyone. How was it for you? Yeah, let's go back to what you said earlier. I think every coming year, it seems less and less ridiculous. And that's unfortunate that um, the way things are going. So let's hope that mankind can suddenly open his eyes or its eyes and and turn things around, especially given what's happened this year, which was quite a blight on the world, really. 2020 has been a very weird year, for, obviously, for everyone. Um, for me, uh, I was actually in Spain just before the first Spanish lockdown was announced, and I happened to have a, an apartment in Extremadura, so I thought to myself, oh, I'll just pop down there for a couple of weeks and then, you know, move on again after the lockdown's over. But five months later, I was still in lockdown. So during that time, I mean, I live when I'm in Spain on my own, and I... You know, you could have gone one of two ways, either sort of sink into depression and loneliness or get out there, be creative. So I chose the latter path. And although it was difficult on some days, because in Spain, the lockdown was pretty draconian. Um, We weren't allowed to go for walks other than to pop down to the shop. So I didn't actually walk anyway for two months. And I remember the first day when we were allowed to go for a walk and it was... I was so nervous. I was standing by the front door at six in the morning, still dark, and I was really nervous and almost agoraphobic. 
And I remember walking out into the streets, feeling as if someone's going to stop me at some point. And I kept walking. And I remember walked to the end of the road. I heard um, Redneck Nightjar in the background singing. <laughs> and I was thinking, there is life out there. And then later on, I walked all the way across the other side of the city. I went to this kind of creek and I was listening to Nightingale. And it was just, I was in heaven. But the problem was my legs and my hips weren't used to walking and my hips seized up my Achilles. I couldn't walk for a week after that. Oh, really? <laughs> but yeah, it's been an interesting um, time in some respects because I had a few ideas that I'd sort of been been lingering in my brain for 10, 15 years and I decided to go ahead with them this, this year and some of them have been kind of working well. So it's been a positive year and I've, in a way and I've been trying to future-proof myself for when things return to some form of normality. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of people have done that, you know, embraced the difficulties and, you know, come up with a way to get through it. Your passion for urban birding has, has led you to coin your battle cry catchphrase of look up, encouraging others to engage with their cities in a different way. I wonder, does always looking up cause problems such as walking into dog turds and lampposts and do you ever suffer from a cricked neck? Walking in onto dog turds and stuff is the least of my problems because that's happened almost every day. I think the worst situation was when I was in Mexico City um, about 10, 15 years ago and I was walking down the street looking up and I was watching the Swifts and I was trying to work out what they were. And when I wasn't looking where I was going and I walked into a hole in the pavement and the <laughs> jagged edge of the concrete cut my shin open to the bone and I was on the floor, you know, blood pouring out of my leg. I was wearing shorts, so, you know, no one helped me apart from a, a down and out guy who came and gave me some of his water, poured it onto my wound. I was actually working at the time in advertising and I was actually on a, a set for a commercial. In fact, well, I was walking to the set, so I managed to contact the set. I had some painful stitches put into my, uh, my shin. So that's been the worst. Um, but the thing is, it is tricky and I have to keep reminding myself, you know, to look and not to make sure I don't walk into lampposts. And the same applies to driving as well, because often give me a car with a sunroof and then you've got problems, potential death trap, because I'm looking up and I'm veering off the road and luckily people say, don't, 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 don't. So I've got to pull over or um, try and look straight ahead instead of yeah. looking up. I think a lot of birders have that problem. And I know, I know that I do as well. I'm constantly getting told off for glancing out the window and, and trying to work out what that particular raptor is or, or whatever. You're also a passionate advocate of patch birding, and that is finding a space usually close to home and watching and documenting the wildlife there regularly. Wormwood Scrubs is your local patch. Can you tell us about it and which great birds you've found there? Yeah, patch, patch watching is a very uh, natural and interesting prospect for me because um, I fell into it by accident. Um, when I was a kid, I was told that you know, birds and wildlife are only found in the countryside and I had no one to take me. So I kind of had to find my own situations and I started in my back garden and then a local park, which had a river and the other side of the river was an area of derelict land and that was my countryside. So I kind of used that as my patch unknowingly because I didn't realise I was patch watching. I just was visiting the place every day. And I used to, with my, my friends, make camps 
do stuff like that. But in the meantime, saw my first Skylarks and my first Kingfisher and Common Sandpiper and Grey Wagtail and stuff like that. But anyway, fast forward, Worm and Scrubs I discovered in the early 90s. I looked, I was working in Labrook Grove and Worm and Scrubs, by the way, is um, kind of near sort of Shepherd's Bush, um, ran that way near the B- where the BBC used to be. And um, I saw this area of green on the map and I thought, well, it's just down the road for me. I'm, at lunchtime, I'll just take a walk out and have a look. So I went there and it was effectively a large area of green half of which was plain fields and the other half was an area of sort of rough grassland and then interspersed and also around the circumference was a very thin area of woodland, very thin. But something grabbed me about the site. And I remember for the first eight days I visited every lunchtime and the first few days I saw nothing, but there was something that kept me going. And then on the seventh day, it was like a biblical moment I, I found a pipe bycatcher. I was like, because it was in August, I was thinking, wow. Next day, I found a tree pipit. The following day, a common red star. And then I was, suddenly the place opened up its secrets to me and I became totally hooked. So for the first 10 years, I found myself birding there on my own. And people saying to me, what are you going there for? What are you going there for? You should be coming, going to Suffolk or Norfolk, going somewhere proper for birding. Particularly during migration time, instead of heading to the coast, I'd head directly to the scrubs. Or if... Down a road, if because um, the London Wetland Centre is literally a mile, mile and a half south of um, Wormwood Scrubs, two miles maybe. If anything ever turned up at the Wetland Centre, I wouldn't go and switch it. I'd go to my patch because I always believe what a microcosm of whatever's happening will be happening on my patch. And I think over the years um, that was proven because um, you know I found a whole range of things, ranging from Richard's pipits. Um, we had three records in total actually: Waterland bunting, um, little bunting quail we've had redback shrike great gray shrike all in an area which is surrounded completely surrounded by humanity you know it's just incredible honey buzzards osprey a whole slew of waders i mean there's no water at all no standing water yet we've had common curly we've had wimbrel you know little little ring plover jack snipe woodcock snipe i mean it's just incredible and it just shows for me an amazing example of going somewhere that looks initially innocuous and if you visit a place often enough and if you walk into that place thinking like I used to and I still do that you are in Norfolk or you are on the Fair Isles you will then start seeing things that you would never expect and it's amazing being there and for example one year there was a fall um, of wheat ears we had about 40 wheat ears in the morning and it was like am I on the coast and there were 16 or 17 common red starts as well and it was just amazing, you know, in the middle of a city. So, you know, patches are fantastic because when you start discovering, I mean, for me, it started very gently. You know, I saw my first green woodpecker there. Great green woodpecker, you know, and it kind of moves from there. But it's your bird. You are the person going there. And also you add to the, the general knowledge of ornithology. You know, instead of going to the places that everyone else goes to, I mean, you can still do that, of course. I always try and get people to find a place of their own as well get to know it, get to love it. And eventually, you know, if you're finding really good stuff, it could build up into something that is worth protecting. So I think it's a very important thing, patch watching. Absolutely. And and I have my local patch and found a redneck phalarope on a piece of dirty water that I've only ever seen little grebes. And if I'm lucky, a tufted duck on there. So I was chuffed a bit, apart from the fact that I 
initially misidentified it as a grey phalaro, but we won't go there. Uh, winter plumage is, and from a distance, it was a bit confusing. So um, we all make mistakes, and yeah. you know, the more mistakes you make, the better you are. And I think you're the bigger person for admitting mistakes. I make I make mistakes all day long. I don't care either. Yeah. I think it's important, especially when you're getting young uh, new people involved, for them not to worry. You know, don't worry about trying obviously you know if you want to try and identify great but at the very least just enjoy the the fact that that bird's there just enjoy it for what it is absolutely um moving on we'll we'll get on to your five birds now and the first bird that you've chosen you've actually found on your local patch i think on more than one occasion as well tell us about bird number one bird number one 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 bird number one came to me in a dream in fact if i can reverse a little bit I discovered bird number one when I discovered a book called The Birds of Britain and Europe and the Middle East, Heinzel Fitter Parslow, which is a, a book that many people may recall. It's got the uh, kestrel flanked by a blue throat and a goldfinch. And I was thumbing through this book and I saw this given bird, um, well, this ring is all, I'll tell you now. Um, and it was next to Blackbird. And I was thinking, oh, that looks amazing. It looks so familiar as well. And then reading about it, I realised that, you know, it wasn't found anywhere near where I was in London. So I was thinking, when will I ever get to see one? You know, because no one's going to take me to Snowdonia or, you know, the Cairngorms. So to cut a long story short, I, I did Twitch one on, on Sillies and I saw one, my first one actually in Corfu in Greece. Um, but that was back in the 80s. But it was very unsatisfactory. So anyway, about <clears throat> excuse me, 16 or 17 years ago, I, I was asleep in April not for the whole of April, but one night in April. And uh, I um, I dreamt that I saw a ring oozle on my patch. And I woke up in the morning thinking, a ring oozle on Wormer Scrubs? I've never seen a ring oozle in London. There's been no records of ring oozle at all in London this spring. How's that going to work? Anyway, I went to my patch, walked around, saw the usual bits and bobs, black cap, chip chaff, all that sort of stuff. Um, walked to my car, and I don't know what possessed me, but I kind of looked over my shoulder for a last look. And as I did, a dark figure flew across my head and landed about 50 feet away, got my bins on it. And there, filling the whole view of this, was this pristine male ring oozle. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, my favourite bird has come to see me. And every year, the ring oozle um, was, the, you know, we found ring oozles on the scrubs. Normally, in, during the penultimate week of April, so I got it pinned down to a particular week. And it could be a case sometimes of, you know, you're looking and then you look up and on top of a poplar, there's a ring oozle and it will look at you and then fly off north. So it's almost as if they stop and say, we're here, and then moving <laughs> off. But then one year I didn't see one in the spring and I was, I was beside myself. I, I was so upset. I, was, I thought my year's ruined. Um, in the autumn, which I've never had an autumn record at the scrubs, I was thinking, oh God, this is going to be terrible. I spent the whole of September looking, not a single fe- feather. October came and went, nothing. And on October the 31st, I went to sleep that night, as most people did. And I woke, well, during the dream, I, during the night I had a dream and I dreamt that I found a ring oozle on my patch. I thought when I woke up in the morning on November the 1st, this is way too late. I mean, this is London. I went to my patch, walked around, didn't see too much, walked around a corner and saw a dead tree. And in that dead tree was not one, but three ring oozles. And two of them stayed for a week, and I think they were the latest in the country, at least latest recorded ones in the country on my patching worm and scrubs. So my favourite bird and I have a spiritual connection. Even when I'm in Spain, I remember I went to going to Spain uh, two Januarys ago, 
I was in uh, Seville writing a piece for Birdwatching magazine on birding, urban birding in Seville. I mean, I walked into a park and it was full of people cycling and holding hands and all that sort of stuff. I found a quiet corner next to Reed Bed, found a kingfisher and stuff. That was all nice. And then I looked up and a female ring oozle flew over my head. And I was like, what? And then just around the corner from where I am now, 45 minutes down the road, there's a mountain range. And I was there one autumn, October time, November, early November, had lunch, walked into the foothills of the mountains, just looking at some uh, orchards and discovered eight ring oozles there. So I think they follow me around. That's amazing. I just hope that one day you start dreaming about harpy eagles. <laughs> and I might even have to visit Wormwood Scrubs myself if you do. For me, the, the thing about ring oozles is that they're such a difficult bird to see. And my views of ring oozles have, have generally been birds on migration, moving from A to B rather than... I've had very little success actually seeing them on their territories in the in the sort of uplands. And I've, I've visited a few times over the years to try and catch them there and only ever had fleeting glimpses. But that's enough, I think, when it comes to almost this mythical bird that is so hard to see. And that's part of their allure, isn't it? And the fact that they're an amazing looking thrush as well. And, and I love a thrush. And these ones have a really smart little bib and those sort of almost chain maily sort of scalloped feather edges. I mean, they're, they're a great bird. Yeah, that, I mean, what, what drew me to them was the, the fact they're so elusive. And what I've learned watching them at the worm, at worm and Scrubs is that I look out for any fleeting sort of dark thrush that lands in a bush and doesn't raise its tail like a blackbird. And I suddenly realise, oh, I'm, I'm onto ring oozle. And I think sometimes they, they slip through because people don't realise. They think it's just yeah. blackbirds just flown past. You know, every year without fail, we've, we, you know, there's been ring discovered. Some stay for a day or two, because the thing is with worm and scrubs, it's very busy. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised that things, I mean, for example, we've had short-eared owl. I mean, short-eared owl is practically an annual visitor, if it's only just flying over. But one st- stuck around for two weeks, which I just didn't understand how, because people walk through the areas and it's not even a big area. So I'm just... I'm just so blessed with a ring oozle because wherever wherever I come across one, I just need to see it. I mean, I, a month ago, I was in Andalusia, and I was in in a province called Jaén, which is quite near by Anduja, which is where all the uh, best places to see Iberian lynx. And I was in this mountain range uh, with my guide, and there must have been 200 ring oozles just buzzing around, and I could have spent the week there. You know, it was just I was just so excited, even though I've seen ring oozles many times, I just Still can't get over seeing them. They're just so special to me. They really are a, f- a fabulous bird. I think the best move on to your your second choice, which is even harder to see. Bird number two. two, two, two. Yeah, I mean, when I was a lot of these these birds actually kind of emanate from childhood, and this is a, another classic example of that. I remember as a kid watching an animated film called The Last of the Curlews. Um, it's a story of a little boy who, who rescues this shot uh, Eskimo curlew, one of a pair that his father shot. And, you know, he raised it back to full health and come the autumn, its mate flew over again and had a tearful farewell with the boy and flew off with its mate. And I was so angry. Um, I was crying after that. I was about six or seven. I was crying because I was thinking, you know, they're probably extinct and I've never had a chance to see one. And the fact that their extinction was basically because of 
um, settlers just shooting them out of the sky. I mean, um, my good friend Rick Simpson from Way the Quest was telling me the other day that they were shooting up to a million a day. I mean, just for sport. I mean, they, they did eat them as well because they were called doe birds because they were full of fat. And they were shooting them in the, in the Midwest when they, when they came because they bred in the um, Arctic tundra of Canada and migrated to the Midwest where they're fed in this particular species of grasshopper, which I, I believe is now extinct as well, before moving on across the Gulf of Mexico and ended up in the Pampas. So there was a shot of existence. And I was thinking, why? And it really upset me. And I, I think from even a young age, I thought I want to go on an expedition and trace their migratory routes, you know, from their breeding grounds full of mosquitoes and stuff, all the way through to the Argentinian Pampas. I need to find the the last confirmed sighting, I think, was in 1962. I think it may have been Galveston in Texas. Um, there's been a few kind of unconfirmed sightings since, um, and most people think they're extinct. But I, I, I have a hope, and there might be one or two still knocking around. And to think that the Eskimo curly was actually on the British and Irish list as well. But then I suppose the curlews are a bit of a doomed tribe within the waders, aren't they? Because look at the slender bill curlew, that's practically gone, if not gone. And the rest of the curlew species seem to be all in decline. So it's, it's a really sad state of affairs, really. Yeah, absolutely. There's eight species, isn't there, of curlew? And I think, like you say, most of them are either endangered or, you know, really struggling. Our own Eurasian curlew, the numbers are hugely down. I was reading as well about the, the Far Eastern curlew, which is probably next one on the list in terms of heading the way of the, the slender build and the Eskimo curlew. And again, it's still a bird that's shot in high numbers in some countries and on migration. And it sort of beggars belief, really, that birds are, are still killed in this day and age in such huge numbers. The first UK record was in 1855, a bird in Aberdeenshire, and that was promptly killed. Do you believe, Kit, that I actually, I've actually held an Eskimo curly in my hand? Really? A skin? Yeah. Where was that? That was in the Cornell Laboratory up in the... Ithaca in New York State. Um, so yeah, that was just an amazing moment. I saw that as well as the um, the passenger pigeon as well. It was just incredible. Yeah, that was a bit of a, a strange experience seeing these birds that had once been alive and there is no more of them anywhere. We'll have a chat now about uh, your third bird to survive the apocalypse with. Tell us about bird number three. Bird number three. Three. <laughs> three. Okay, bird number three is the Sabine skull. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Is it Sabines or Sabines? I've always said Sabines, but then again, I say Hoopo. So, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask. Yeah, I say um, Hoopo, actually. And yeah, I know, I think most people do. Out of interest, Kit, the Orderwin girl, do you say Orderwin or Order One? Orderwin, but to be honest, it's not something that I've had to say very often. <laughs> <laughs> and I tend to do most of, my, most of my birding solitary, so I tend not to sort of hear other birders talking about these sorts of things. Yeah, I know people, um, there's one guy I know who's a birder and he says saying glaucus, he says glaucious. Oh, right. Well, that, that's very posh. <laughs> and then I've got another friend, by the way, just on the subject. Um, he's not a birder. And um, when I was telling him about shovelers, he called them chevalers, which I think is a much nicer way of saying it, chevaler. <laughs> it makes them sound far more uh, exotic as well, yeah. But anyway, Sabine Skull, um, it's a bird that I've always, always wanted to see, but I I, I basically said to myself, I promised myself that I would never twitch one. And that was after um, the, the great storm of 1987, when there must have been about 12 of them in London. And I was in or on the Isles of City looking at uh, Philadelphia Vireo and Hermit Thrush and Northern 
sorry, Baltimore Oriole. I thought to myself, right, that's it. I'm not going to twitch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just look for this bird. They'll find it naturally. And to date, I've only ever seen one in my life. And that was found quite by accident. I was actually in Punta Arenas in Chile, which is the most southerly, one of, I think the most southerly town in um, Chile, if I'm not wrong. So it's the next stop to uh, Antarctica. And in fact, I was leading a tour to Antarctica. And I was walking along the shoreline of the town, just walking on the outskirts, looking at the, um, the general birds that should be there. And then I came across this gull flying along the shoreline and it was an, an, an immature and wing pattern was diagnostic. Even though I've never seen a sapphire, I knew immediately it was a sapphire. And I was, oh my, that's amazing. And I just spent the rest of the day with it, you know, taking photographs. And I remember getting on the ship to tell the, uh, the ship's ornithologist, I've just seen a sabine skull or sabine skull or Sabine's girl. And um, he, he said to me, no, you haven't. You've seen a brown-headed girl. So when I produced the pictures, then he had to believe me. It turned out to be the most southerly record for Sabine's girl in Chile. So that was a, a nice accolade. I've never seen one since. And I've looked for years. I mean, I know people who haven't seen Puffin, who haven't seen Storm Petrel. But for me, I think Sabine's girl is a bit more of a sort of a mysterious bird that you have to be in it to win it and you know you either get lucky or you don't even now i would never twitch one i want to find one naturally they're a bird as bird aren't they and i mean i think most of the birds that do turn up in the uk are, are going to be immature plumaged i mean these birds on in their summer plumage are, are stunning gulls and i've given gulls some stick over the years largely because i'm too lazy and i don't have the time to dedicate to learning their id properly and I find them really difficult, particularly all the different plumages. But I mean, these are these are stunning birds in their, in their summer plumage. But I totally agree with you. Finding your own bird, if it's a bird that you love, is, is so much more satisfying than going to see one that, that you know is just there. I do the same thing every year with waxwings. You hear them reported. I see them on the local WhatsApp group, but I refuse to go, you know, because I just want to find them myself. And most years I do. And on good years, you know, a few times. I do start to get a bit nervous and twitchy around about late January if I've still not found any though. And then you start seeing the reports and you're going, am I going to have to, you know, just to get my waxwing dose for the winter? You know, and, and the fact that you sort of completely refused to go and see one when you could have done and, and to find your own and to find one in such amazing circumstances is is brilliant. But the thing is, they're just so beautiful. And again, it goes back to when I was looking at my first ever field guide and I was used to black-headed gulls and herring gulls and lesser black-backed gulls. And then there was this beautiful gull that had this really interesting pattern, greyish hood instead of a black hood. And I just thought, wow, I, just, I need to see you. You know, these birds just captivate you, don't they? You just, yeah. They just stick in your, your memory and you, th you think to yourself, I just need to see one of those birds. So it's been with me all my life, really in terms of wanting to see them. And I still have an urge and I still, wherever I can, see, watch and hope that one flies past, but to date it hasn't happened yet. I'm sure you'll get lucky again one day. Let's talk about your fourth choice, which, booking the trend, isn't quite as hard to see if you're in the right place, but tell us about bird number four. Bird number four. Bird number four I came across when I was around about eight. Uh, my mum bought me a book which was a massive book in my mind anyway, in my little hands. But uh, Animals of the Americas, it was called. And that's actually the book that connected me with my past life because I think I was a puma. And I remember turning the page and seeing this picture of a puma and thinking, I know you! <laughs> Having this immediate connection. Um, but anyway, um, the bird in question is the American swallowtail kite. <sighs> 
Uh, it's just, I mean, I describe it as sex on wings. It's just amazing. It's just such a glorious bird. And, you know, as a kid, I was thinking, oh, I love, I mean, it's big. It's got this forked tail. It's mostly white with black primaries, white feathers and um, black forked tail. It's just, it just looks so amazing. And I never was in the right place to see one, to be honest, until I went to Peru about seven years ago and saw them flying around in their wintering area. And it was like, for me, one of the moments. And then I've also seen them since in Colombia and Belize. In fact, Belize was, in fact, Colombia this year, actually. In January, I was in Colombia. You know, to see them is great. I've never actually seen one really close up yet. And I've never, ever seen one on American soil either. So I need to go to Florida, I think, to see them. Yeah. But they are just so beautiful. So stunningly beautiful. I, I have a soft spot for all birds that are those monochrome classics, you know, the, the black, whites, greys, understated, but stunning. I, I love a pied flycatcher and dipper and, and sort of like the, the more understated, but beautiful birds. And, and I think this is certainly right up there in that category. They're, they're amazing looking birds. And I've never seen one, and but I've seen them many times in books and it's still a dream bird for me. One thing I did read about them, though, I looked them up on online um, and this might interest you. I found them referenced on a site about spirit animals and apparently, and I quote, swallow-tailed kites are one of the most graceful at flying and will teach you how to do the same. Well, that's brilliant because I don't know about you, David, but I've always wanted to fly. So uh, if I can learn that from a swallow-tailed kite, that's brilliant. But it goes on to say, she will show you how to maximize results with little or no effort. Observe carefully what is around you and resources will appear. She will teach you how to skim the surface of knowledge to collect what you need for the moment. She will show you how to view life from a higher perspective. So, I mean, I, I assume that if, you know, if you can get all of those skills from an American swallow-tailed kite, that if you watch a beard of vulture, you'll learn how to smash bones and suck the marrow of life. Or if you see a hoopoe, then you'll learn how to spray your enemies with liquid feces. I mean, this is brilliant that you can learn these things from birds. I think they're all great life skills. <laughs> absolutely so on that note let's go to your last bird which again i think we're seeing a, a trend here with your choices it's another hard to see bird bird number five. five yeah i mean when you asked me this question originally i was torn between this species and the mountain plover both by the way both these species are from north america but i think I think it's got to go to Smith's long spur, which is it's part of the sort of, well, it's a long spur related to Lapland buntings. What I loved about this bird, and again, it's one of those things looking at field guides and seeing this really interesting orangey looking bird with a black and white sort of facial pattern. It looks like a, a small bunting. And when I read about it, I read that it's Unlike the Lapland bunting, which, you know, we are familiar with hopping along the shorelines in Norfolk or whatever, this bunting hangs out in grass, which is ankle high, and flocks are very hard to flush, so you wouldn't even know they're there. They're not picked up often on migration, because I've been to the States a few times, and I've actually specifically asked people, look, take me to a, a Smith's Longspur. Do you know anywhere where they found a migration? And the answer is, the answer is normally... Who knows? I mean, they may turn up. And I don't know. Who knows? No one knows, you know. So they're kind of a mystery bird. They breed up in the in Canadian and Alaskan tundra. They migrate through the middle of the US and they kind of hang out 
somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I can't, I can't recognise the, uh, the states, but it's down in the middle. But no one ever talks about them. You know, I don't see many pictures of them at all on Facebook. You know, I've got many American friends and none of them have any pictures of Smith's Longspur. It's kind of a mystery bird. And I love mystery birds. And I've never seen one, but I love the way it looks. I love the name. And I love the fact it's hard to find. I just love all that. It's, it, that's what birding is about, really, for me. It's, it's about the discovery of these things. And I, I hope, I really hope that one day I bump into one. I don't know what I do when I see one, actually, but I just love to see one. I think it brings us full circle, doesn't it? I mean, it, basically, at heart, you're still that kid who's dreaming of ring oozles. Um, you know, you've got these, I mean, and I think that's fantastic, you know, and that's one of the joys of birding, isn't it? That you can still have dream birds, birds that inspire you and, and sort of like catch your imagination and, and that you dream one day of seeing. And yeah, because for me, it's not about listing, you know. I mean, okay, I went through a twitching stage like a lot of people did, but I've now come through that sort of situation and don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with twitching and sometimes if I'm in an area and something's nearby of course it's rude not to look at it but I love you know I love the idea I love the way birds make you feel I love the way that being in a habitat whether it be urban or in the middle of nowhere how it makes you feel spiritually and the 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 fact that you could find anything one thing I will you know I'll give you I'll let you into a little secret here which I don't normally talk about publicly but I lead a lot of tours and I also go on a lot of, over the years, a lot of press trips. I've been lucky enough to be invited to various places around the world, even, you know, from the UK all the way through to, you know, Antarctica. And I always, in my mind, you know, people give me a list of what's been seen or whatever. I look at it, but I don't, I disregard it because for me, anything can turn up anywhere at any time. And I have a 100% record over the last 14 years as being the urban birder of being with people and they turn around to me at some point and say, I have not seen that here before. Because if you go into any scene, any kind of habitat, any birding opportunity with a completely open mind and think to yourself, even though I'm in the middle of the city, I can find something of interest. And even if it's something that I've seen before, but doing something interesting, you'll never be disappointed. And for me, it always... You know, one example was um, I was in a, someone's garden uh, near East Grinstead in Sussex. Sorry, sorry. Is it Sussex or sorry? I can't remember where it is. Sussex or whatever. It's a, you know, a garden, typical suburban garden. And I was just showing them a quick snapshot of what's around, you know, in their garden. They weren't a birder. And I was looking up and I see red kite and buzzard and it was all new to them. And all of a sudden the kingfisher flew past. And this place was nowhere near a river. When people say, oh, that's unusual. Maybe it's not unusual. You know, maybe that stuff happens all the time. Maybe people don't see this because they don't look for it, because they don't believe it. I get so excited. I don't care where I am. I just, ex- I'm excited. I'm thinking anything can turn up. And, you know, example, scrubs. I mean, I've had many examples, but I remember one December in 2005, um, walking around the scrubs and it was a, not a very nice day. And I saw this bird land on a post in front of me and it looked reddish and had I not looked at it, I would have thought of Robin, but I thought, no, I'm going to look at it. So I looked at it and it turned out to be a common red star in December. And I think it's the second record in Britain of a wintering common red star because it stayed until the following February. Anything can turn up anywhere at any time. And you just have to be so open-minded and just 
fill yourself with joy and excitement thinking I'm out I'm alive I can I, I've got a pair of binoculars I can look at things I can I'm enjoying life and I want to try and protect what I'm looking at you know I want to try and get my passion going and I think that you know once you think along those lines you will start seeing loads of things like I give many talks um, especially prior to um, COVID and I say to people you know go out tomorrow open your mind and then I get emails back saying I can't believe it. I looked out and I saw, it's like the force. I saw this bird I'd never seen in my garden before. You know, it's great. And that's what is exciting for me about birding. You know, one of the excitements, other than how it makes me feel generally, the fact that you can find anything, anything is possible. You've talked about your five favourite birds and the five that you will choose to survive the apocalypse with. Now, we can't avoid this any longer. You're going to have to choose one of these five and hit it against my peregrine, the bird that gives the Golden Grenades podcast its name. So let's have it. Let's have this battle. Which of the five birds are you going to pit against my peregrine? Well, for me, um, it's a choice of two. It's an internal battle between the ring oozle and the Eskimo curlew. But I think that given the way I kind of live my life and the way I see things in, in life generally, I will go for the Eskimo Curly because I believe, I believe that it's still out there somewhere. I believe that um, one day it will be found again. I believe that it will be very happy hanging out with me on my desert island, without doubt. Well... Seeing as you put it like that, I think it would be very tough of my peregrine to just come and pluck your Eskimo curlew out of the sky, which I'm sure they once did, you know, when Eskimo curlews were more numerous. So I think rather than crush your dreams, I'm going to let you win this battle. And this week's winner of Golden Grenades is David's Eskimo curlew. So, very kind of it and the, your peregrine i appreciate that because you you know you've got to give life a chance absolutely well david it's been an absolute pleasure thanks so much for coming on today and maybe you've got a couple of moments to tell us about what you've got planned for 2021 firstly kit uh, the pleasure's all mine it's really beautiful hanging out of you you're a great guy and as i say i love the fact that you just get out there and do things and you know this whole industry this whole sort of space needs more people like you who have an open mind who are creative and want to try different things. I think it's so important. Uh, one of my worries for the future, especially young people coming through, is that there's no mavericks or very few mavericks. We need more mavericks. We need people who can stand up and be themselves and put across this message that people can understand. And what, by people, I'm talking about the people who want in our world. We're very good at talking to people within our world, but we need to learn more about reaching out to other people. And that can be done through the mediums of art, music, culture. We need to be doing more of that because often I find within this space that it's all very narrow. I find a lot of the NGOs a little bit conservative and grey in their thinking. We need to break out of that. If we need to, if we're going to, you know, change things, we need to change from within. So that's a very important thing. But going back to your question, Kit, um, I have a lot of things planned for 2021. One of which is a, a new book called Birds on My Mind, which is a collection of some of my photographs. I've never considered myself a photographer, but people seem to like what I do, especially on Instagram. And I've been asked to be a judge on the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award, as well as the uh, the Bird Photographer of the Year Award. So I'm honoured to be asked to do that, especially to promote 
photography of urban wildlife and urban birds in particular. So that's really exciting for me. And over and above that, I'm setting up the Urban Birder Membership Club in the spring of 2021. I'm trying to get all the urban birders of the world together. And apart from offering discounts on services and products um, that can help urban birders do their thing, I'm also going to be having lots of help available for urban birders, ranging from how to watch birds through to creative writing, through to even yoga for birders to help with those crick necks and bad backs. So, so I'm really excited uh, about the prospects for 20, what, 2021. And I hope that um, everyone listening will also have a good year as well. Well, good luck to you with those. And David, thanks once again for coming on. Thank you, sir. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Do join me next week when my special guest will be the author, Jill Lewis. Bye for now. Bye.